Welcome to River Rock Bible Church. We are so glad that you joined us this morning. Last week we began a new series through the book of Mark, and many of you picked up a copy of this reading plan that we've put together for you. And we kind of challenged the church as a whole that we would go through uh, the reading plan together. And so every day there's a daily reading in here, and if you do it, it takes about five minutes. We kind of challenged ourselves, let's do five minutes in prayer and five minutes in reading every day. And as we do this, we're doing it together. We're talking about it. Uh, there's, there's a really important reason why we do it this way. If you don't have one of these reading plans, let me tell you, uh, we've got a couple on order. Uh, we ran out last week, so we've got a couple that, that we've ordered. But you, in the meantime, you can find it online. Uh, and on our website, if you just go to the media tab, it's right under the Mark series. You can download it from there, and you can keep up with us. If you didn't keep up this week or you missed a day, don't worry. You can catch up. It's only about five minutes a day. Sometimes it's less, so you can do two a day. You could probably sit down in about 15 minutes this afternoon and be completely caught up with the rest of us. So don't worry. Um, or if you just want to jump right in where we are, just jump right into chapter two this week with us. But we're excited about this because I truly believe that as we spend time in the Word of God, that things change. Our, our theme this year has been redefining relationships and so as we think about redefining relationships, remember we kind of had that re in parentheses there because for some of us, we're going to be looking at relationships for the second time. We're going to be redefining them in our lives. And for some of us, there are relationships that we've never really sat down and defined. We've never really given much thought to. And so for us, we're defining those relationships for the first time. And I believe that through the Word of God, as we spend time in the Word of God, there are many Christians, many of you have been Christians for a long time, and you've been coming to church, and you've been doing the things that Christians do, yet you've been neglecting the day-to-day. You've been neglecting the fact that God's desire is for you to engage with Him every single day. And so it's our desire that through this reading plan that every day you'd be engaged with the Word of God, not just on Sunday, but you would be engaged with the Word of God and that it would be changing your life and that you might come to a a redefining of your relationship with God that is much bigger than Sunday morning. It's much bigger than that. It's much bigger than Sunday morning and community group night. It's every day, every minute, every second. And there are others here who your entire life, you've kept God at arm's distance. And you've said, that's close enough. And you're here, you're, you're thinking about it, you're learning, you're reading, and uh, you're, you're just curious. And so to you, I would say, dive in. Dive into God's Word. Dive into the Bible. Get in five minutes a day. Do the reading. Keep up with us. We're going to be talking about it. And I, I guarantee you that as you do, as you read through Mark and some of the Psalms and some of the Proverbs, that it's going to change your relationship with God. I guarantee it. At some point, by the end of this series, if you're faithful and you keep up with it, you will have had to answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? Who is God? What do I truly believe about him? What is my relationship with him? So I encourage you, dive in, be in the word every single day. Um, it's life-changing. It's something that we're, we're excited about. You know, I had a great conversation with a friend this last week. He said, man, I, I started with the reading plan, and, and I just found by like Tuesday it wasn't enough. I wanted more, so I started reading the other Gospels, and I'm going to keep reading these big chunks of the Gospels every day because I just wanted more. I just wanted more time. I just wanted more of God's Word. And that's our prayer. That's our desire, that as you go through this, you would just desire long and hunger for more and more of God. So last week, we started with Mark chapter 1. 
This week we're diving in to Mark chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, I hope you do. Go ahead and turn there and your Bibles will be there in just a minute. Uh, But this week, I got to say, this week I was thinking about the very first iPhone. Do you remember the very first iPhone and when it came out and what a big deal that was? This guy's got the very first one in America that was sold. You know, he's holding it up. He's excited. Well, I can remember it because I was just out of seminary, and my wife and I had moved. I went up to seminary up near Boston, and so we moved from Boston to the Promised Land, back to Texas, and we were so happy to be home. I was working for a church up in the Dallas area, and it was about my third week on the job when they had Vacation Bible School. And Vacation Bible School at this church was a big deal because we had about 90 teenagers that would come and serve as helpers at Vacation Bible School. One year we had more teenagers than we had actual kids coming to vacation Bible school. It was crazy. And my job, three weeks in, was to manage and and make sure these teenagers were where they were supposed to be. Well, I'll never forget. Never forget. It was not long after I started there, one of the kids came up and said, my parents ordered me an iPhone. 13 years old. And I'm like, what does a 13-year-old need with a $600 phone? Like, that's a completely different topic. We'll cover that another day. But uh, I was like, man, I don't think I own anything that costs $600. Not even my car. I can't imagine a phone. And, and so he's talking about it and building it up and building it up. Oh, it's going to be able to do this and be able to do that. And so it finally comes. They'd ordered it. It came in the mail. He got it the day before, and he brings it, uh, like on a Tuesday, brings it into my office. We're in the middle of vacation Bible school. All the kids saw the, iPod, the uh, iPhone box coming in with him, and, and we bring it up to my office, and there's a bunch of us gathered there. And he, he sets the box down, and I'm not kidding. That, that box just, like, levitated on its own. And then the flaps opened on their own, and there was like light shining down, and angels singing, and and we're just all looking at this iPhone. We're like, whoa, we've never seen anything like this before. And he pulls it out, and he sets it on my desk, and he pushes that little button, and we see this little glowing white apple. We're like, man. One of the kids said, "Can I touch it?" And he goes, "No, get your own iPhone." Uh, and so, so he's playing with it, he's setting it up, and he's walking around the rest of the day, and he's like, hey man, check this out, I, I, I just found out that my phone can do this, and look, look at this app that I'm using, you know, there's an app for that, and, and so he's showing off his phone, and, and throughout the week, he would come up to me, and he would pull me aside, and he'd say, hey, check this out, look at this, look what my phone can do, can your phone do that? And it's like, well, no, I got a rinky-dink little flip phone. No, my phone can't do that. And he was so condescending about something so small as a phone. And as I thought about that this week, I realized that we're no different. We as people, as human beings, we have a tendency to compare and to compete and to condescend. And it's not just about things uh, like phones. It's, it, it, one of the first places we ever see it is in parenting, Right? I knew a lot more about parenting before I had kids. And there are some people, you don't have to have kids to know something about parenting, right? We've all been in the grocery store, and you can hear that family three aisles over. And your only prayer is, dear Lord, do not let them come down my aisle. I don't want to deal with this today. But surely enough, you end up on the same aisle as this family. They got one kid hanging on the side of the basket, and he's rocking it back and forth. You got another kid in the basket screaming, standing up. You got the two oldest kids are are playing football with a jar of pickles. And it turns out that your cart is the end zone. And so as they crash into your cart, you give the look like, can't you control your children? Not my kids. Man, if it was my kids, and you, you know, you immediately jump to this person doesn't know anything about discipline. This person doesn't know anything about parenting. If it was my kids, they would be in shackles as we go through Walmart. 
right? Well, not my kids. My kids would be so weighed down by their halos that they wouldn't need the shackles. Uh, But maybe your kids. Uh, So we, we immediately jump to the worst about people, and we assume that, oh, he's... He's not a very good parent. She's not a very good parent. I would have done it differently. We compare, we compete, we condescend. And it's not just in parenting. We do it with everything. The size of our bank account, the size of our house, or the level of fitness that we're in, the level of education that we have. We just have this tendency to compare and to compete and and to condescend with the smallest and tiniest of things. Now, maybe I'm the only condescending jerk here this morning, but I imagine that you are too, (laughs) if we're honest with each other, right? So why is it that we do this? Why is it that we we condescend and we compete and we, we assume the worst of people? And when we look at people and we assume that, that they're this way because that's who they are, but when it happens to me, it's, it's just because, you know, there was, there was an accident or it was the situation that I'm in, and uh, we just have this, this innate tendency to do that with even the smallest things. There's actually a word for that. There's a word for it. It's called the fundamental attribution error. Right? If you, were, if you ever took logic class in high school or in college, or maybe they mentioned this in your psychology class, it's called the fundamental attribution error. And this is what it says. I'm going to read it so I get it right. The fundamental attribution error is when we, te- we tend to falsely attribute negative behavior of others to their character, while we attribute our own negative behaviors to our environment. So when we see that other person in the grocery store, we immediately think he's a horrible parent. But when it's us, we think my kids would never act that way. And if they did, we're looking for the PA system. We want to get on and say, uh, this is not a normal day for the Turners. My kids do not normally behave like this. The kid is screaming because I ran over his foot with the grocery cart. They're good kids. Come to our house. You'll see. <laughs> you know, and we want to cover up and let everybody know that it's not because this is who we are, but this is just the circumstance. And so with, with even the smallest things, we tend to look at someone and say, oh, you tripped because you're clumsy. But when I trip, I ask, who left that rock there? Right? We automatically assume that it's because of their character, that it's because of who they are, and we automatically assume that if it's us, it's something around us. It's a situation around us. But it gets even worse than that. Because even when we get to success, we want to attribute our success to the fact that I've worked hard. I've been productive. But their success is because they just got lucky right? We see this, this fundamental attribution error all over the place. One of the places we see it is in driving, right? How many of you, let's be honest, how many of you would say that you are a better than average driver? Let's hold up your hands. Come on, be honest. Better than average driver. All right, look around the room. Keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. Look around the room. All right, about half of you have your hands up. About half of you have your hands up, which means this is statistically impossible for everyone in this room to be a better than average driver. Those of you that didn't raise your hand, you just knew where I was going with this, right? Statistically impossible that we are all better than average drivers. But we think that about ourselves. And so when we're driving and someone's on their phone putting their mascara on and they cut into our lane, what do we say? Idiot, jerk, another word that you can't say here in church, right? Something else, something worse, 
right? We automatically assume that they cut into our lane because that's who they are. But when we do it, it's like, oh, well, my phone rang, and I reached down to grab it, and so I swerved a little bit. You know, no big deal. It was, it was uh, about a situation, something going on around me. I had to take care of it, or I sneezed and jerked the wheel a little bit. We automatically assume the worst of others and the best of ourselves, and we commit this fundamental attribution error. And let me say this. Um, it's not good when we do it with things like driving or our bank account or parenting That's not good behavior, right? Can we all agree that that's not good? We all do it, but can we agree that that's not good? It's not very Christian. But what's even worse is when we do it with the spiritual things in our lives. When we compare and we compete and we condescend in spiritual matters. Or we compare and we compete and we condescend when it comes to someone else's sin. Or we compare and we compete and we condescend when it comes to someone else's relationship with God. But we all do it. We all do it. If we're honest with ourselves, we've been there. We've done that. And there's good news. There's good news that Jesus addresses this exact thing in Mark chapter 2. In fact, we're going to see throughout the Gospel of Mark, and as you read throughout the other Gospels, you're going to see that it's this very attitude about religion and about people's relationship with God and their sin. This is one of the main things that Jesus spends his ministry trying to overturn and showing that it's different. Showing that this is not the way it's intended to be. So turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 13. Then Jesus went out again beside the sea. So if you remember back in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is out by the sea. He's run into Andrew and Simon, and he's called some of his first disciples. And then he he begins teaching. And so he's out again by the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he taught them. So Jesus has a crowd of people that are following him. They're eager to hear what he has to say. They're coming to him. They're desiring to hear from him. And it says, then moving on, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. Now, most of us would recognize Levi by his other name, Matthew. Matthew, he's the writer of the gospel that comes just before the gospel of Mark. So Levi is there. He's sitting at his tax booth. And let me just give you a little bit of background on tax collectors. Uh, Tax collectors in this day were some of the most hated people around. And they were hated for this very reason, that the government, Caesar, would say, here is the tax rate, but you can charge whatever you want. As long as we get ours, we're good with you charging whatever you want. And so they would jack up the tax rate, and they would live comfortably, make a nice profit, give Caesar his, his little percent, and they would keep the rest for themselves. Everyone hated the tax people. They hated the tax collectors. And it was even worse if you were a Jewish tax collectors, because not only were you a tax collector, but you were now a traitor. You betrayed your own people. How could you do this? And so he was hated. He was hated, yet Jesus comes to him, and Jesus says, follow me. And he gets up from his table, and he begins following Jesus. And let's look at the next set of verses here. He ends up at Matthew's house. They're having a little party. Matthew's invited some of his friends And he says this, While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also guests, and Jesus with his disciples. Because there were many who were following him, when the scribes and Pharisees, 
scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Notice who they ask. They don't come to Jesus and ask this question. They ask his disciples. I think they may have been a little bit afraid of what Jesus might have said. Now, I'm going to jump out of Mark for just a little bit and give us a a real simple um, but necessary Bible reading principle. I think it's important. As you're reading through Mark at home, I just want to put this out there. You can write it down. It might be helpful as you're going through later on and reading through the book of Mark, reading through Psalms, Proverbs, wherever you're reading. This is a very simple Bible reading principle. Here it is. Don't make it say something it isn't saying. Right? Don't make it say something it isn't saying. I can imagine that people read this passage and they think this passage is all about what kind of friends I should hang out with and the people I should spend my time with. And I can imagine that later this week there will be a teenager who comes to mom and dad and mom and dad have said, "Uh, listen, we're a little concerned about the friends that you're hanging out with. And the teenager, after they've rolled their eyes, is going to say, dad, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Right? This is what Jesus says. This is his reply to the Pharisees. He says, look, somehow the word gets all the way down the table. I don't know how it happened. I don't know if these Pharisees, my guess is they wouldn't even come in the house. They were so ashamed or afraid of being seen with sinners and tax collectors that they're standing at a window and they're they're like, hey, come here. And he calls his disciples over and they ask the question. And somehow this question makes its way all the way down to Jesus. And Jesus says this in verse 17, very clearly. He says, when Jesus heard this, he told them, those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do need one. I, can't, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so this passage is not about who you're hanging out with and who you're not hanging out with. Don't make it say something it isn't saying. This passage is about so much more than that. And, and here's how you know that this isn't the point that Jesus is making, is that you can look at who Jesus said these words to. Who does he say it to? He says it to the Pharisees, to the scribes. He tells them, not the people around him, he tells them that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick do need one. And I can imagine that as Jesus is saying this, you've you got to sense there's a little bit of sarcasm in there, right? Can you sense that? That Jesus is talking to these Pharisees who think they're the healthy ones. And I think if Jesus were saying it today, he would have put it in air quotes. He would have said, listen guys, it's not the healthy, you know, you guys, the healthy ones who need a doctor. It's the sick. It's the ones you would call sick. I didn't come to call you righteous people. I came for the sinners. Now imagine that you're one of the tax collectors. You're one of Levi's guests sitting there at the table, and you hear Jesus say that. I mean, my first thought would be, uh, I'm a little bit offended by that, Jesus. But we don't see that. They don't appear to have been offended because, remember, these are the guys who understood. They're like, yeah, we, we need you, Jesus. We need you in our life. And the Pharisees, at the same time, were, were over there saying, oh, oh, okay, Jesus, that makes sense. Carry on. Spend your time with the sinners. Yet Jesus was trying to point out that you're, unless you can admit your own sinfulness, 
There's not much I can do for you. There's not much I can do for you. If you already think you're healthy, then there's not much I can do for you. You have to be aware of your own sinfulness. We must be aware of our own sinfulness. I think the tax collectors and the sinners that were there, they knew that Jesus was kind of ripping on the Pharisees. They got that immediately. But they also knew that, yeah, tax collector, sinner, that's me. Not the righteous, but the sinner, that's me. I need you, Jesus. I need you. And they understood that. And they, they wanted nothing more than to spend time with Jesus. Now, we have to really understand, Jesus did not believe that the, that the Pharisees and the scribes were healthy. He didn't believe that they were righteous. He's making a point. He's making a point. And his point is that apart from me, Apart from me, if you're not going to admit that you're a sinner and you're in need of God's help, there's not much I can do for you. There's not much more I can do for you. Until you get to that point where you're willing to acknowledge your own brokenness, there's not much I can do. So we must be aware of our own sinfulness. And I have to say that this is perhaps the biggest problem that I think the church faces. This is the biggest problem that we as a, as a church and as the church of Jesus Christ face is that we come in and we think that all of our sin, all of our obstinance, all of our disobedience is in the past. And we look at the world around us who've yet to put their trust in Jesus Christ and we look at them and we say, you are so sinful, you are so disobedient, you are so obstinate towards God, what is your problem? And when we do that, when we condescend and we compete and we do this with spiritual things, we do this with our relationship with God, we don't draw people closer to God, do we? We end up driving them away. We end up driving them further and further away. And so let me say this. I believe, I believe that the church ought to be the one place where the sinful, the obstinate, the disobedient, the people that are doing things that you might consider disgusting, the, the people who live a lifestyle that you would want nothing to do with, the church ought to be the one place that they can come and they can dump all of that and experience peace and love and grace. The church ought to be that kind of place, but unfortunately it doesn't have that reputation, does it? Christians don't have that kind of reputation as people who love unconditionally, do we? We don't. Why is it so important that the church is that kind of place? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you already know the answer to that. Why is it so important that the church ought to be the one place that someone who is hurting, someone who is struggling, someone who doesn't even know that what they're doing is sin, why is it that the church ought to be the one place that they can come and dump all of that? Because the church, as believers, we know that the only answer to that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? We know that until they have a relationship with God, that they can't change anything. They can try hard. They can, they can sure try harder to give up whatever it is that's got them stuck in a rut. They can try harder. They can make efforts to be good. But until they begin that relationship with Jesus Christ, they're not going to go anywhere. They're going to end up the same place they've always been, and they're going to end up saying, nice try, but it's not good enough. It was Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, paid the penalty for our sins, 
And when we trust in him, that sin is forgiven. But that doesn't mean that we are without sin. Right? We still have our sin. We have to continually preach the gospel to ourselves and be reminded that without God's grace, where would we be? But for the grace of God. But for the grace of God. Now here's what I love about Jesus. What I love about Jesus in this story is that Jesus saw past their, poten- their problems to their potential. Jesus saw past the problems of the tax collectors and the quote-unquote sinners to their potential. He knew that there was something more. He knew that, that their problem wasn't that they were immoral. Their problem wasn't their sin. Their problem was that they needed God in their lives. They needed a relationship with, with God. And Jesus, being God himself, knew that if he could spend time with them, if he could be with them and show them the unconditional love of God, that, that things would begin to change. Like I said, the church needs to be the one place where we can go and we can dump all of our sin, all of our problems, and we can bring it to the foot of the cross, and we can experience grace and the unconditional love of the people around us. And this is, this is something that's very challenging for many of us. We, we think that... that uh, it, it ought to be this way, and surely it is this way, but you've got to know that there are people out there who feel like if I show up at church, that building is going to burn to the ground. There are people who are out there that say, you know what, I would love to go to church, but first I need to get my life cleaned up. And that is not what we see in Scripture. That is not the example that Jesus set for us. The example that Jesus set for us is that he looks past their problems to their potential. Jesus looks at them and sees who they could be in Jesus Christ and in God. So why is it so difficult for the church to be this place where people come and they experience this unconditional love of God? They experience the grace of God. Why is that so difficult? It's because every day you and I commit the fundamental attribution error with our spiritual things. And what I love is that long before that that phenomenon had a name, Jesus addressed it because he knew that was part of the human condition. Jesus knew that we would compare, that we would compete, and we would condescend with our spiritual relationships and with other people's sins. In fact, in Matthew 7, he says, why do you look at your brother and try to remove the speck out of his eye? Meanwhile, there's a log in your own eye. First, remove the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, let me say this. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying that your sin is bigger than you think, and their sin is smaller than you think. Did you catch that? Your sin is way bigger than you could ever think or imagine about yourself. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, I'm my own worst critic, and I'm sure you are publicly, but inside, we tend to give ourselves a tremendous amount of grace that we don't extend even to our spouses, right? Our sin is way bigger than we think, and their sin is so much smaller than we think, and so the church ought to be a place where people can come no matter how sinful, no matter how disgusting, no matter how fill in the word, they ought to be able to come and experience the same grace that those of us who are following Jesus Christ have experienced. Don't you agree? 
shouldn't they be welcome? Shouldn't they feel God's unconditional love? One thing we pray every Sunday morning at 9.15, at 9.15 we meet as a leadership team, the worship team, all of our our morning volunteers meet right back uh, in the back of this room, and we pray for the morning service. And one thing that we pray every single week is that people would come and they would experience the empowering presence of God. And that happens in a number of ways. That happens through worship, through singing. That happens through the teaching of the word, through times of prayer. We want people to leave here. And even if they've not put their trust in Jesus Christ, they would walk away saying, man, that was, that was amazing. I, I don't know what that was, but I want more of it. I want to be a part of that. And those of us who, who do know Jesus Christ as our saviors, we would be filled and encouraged to go out in the week and to be engaged in our relationship with him every single day. But let me say, I believe one of the biggest parts of experiencing God's empowering presence is not the singing, it's not the teaching of the scripture, it's not the prayer, it's what happens the moment you step out of your car and you begin walking into the building where God's people are, where we're extending grace to one another, we're praying with one another, we're laughing in the good times, we're weeping with one another in the bad times. This is what I believe Jesus sets out as the example, is that he looks past their problems to their potential. Look at that one more time with me. Look at that. Jesus saw past their problems to their potential. Do me a favor. Where it says there, put my, put my, Jesus saw past my problems to my potential. Because you know the people that, that I know that do this really well, that love unconditionally, and they have this kind of relationship with people that are far from God, that, that they're able to say things that most of us are like, you're going to offend him in saying that. They're able to say things to these people in such a way that they understand that they're loved. I love, over in Mark chapter 6, when we get there, uh, I, we're not going to look at that story from chapter 6, but it's John the Baptist, and he's there, and he's, he's in prison with, uh, by Herod. And what it says is that Herod was deeply disturbed when he would listen to John, but it pleased him to listen to him. There was something about what John was saying. John was not shying away from confronting Herod with his sin, but he was able to say it in such a way that Herod wanted to hear more. I need to hear more. So this doesn't mean that we never point out someone's sin, that we never hold someone accountable, right? We do. There are times for us to do that. If you're about to eat rat poison, you want me to tell you that you're about to eat rat poison, right? I hope so. I hope you would tell me, right? If I'm doing something in my life that's going to keep me farther away from God, I hope you would love me enough to say, hey, you got to cut that out. So it doesn't mean that we, we don't ever point out someone else's sin, but here's what it does mean. It does mean that you're not the Holy Spirit, right? Some of you have been auditioning for that role your entire lives, <laughs> But as far as I know, that role is taken for all eternity, right? For all eternity, the role of the Holy Spirit is taken. It's not our job to constantly be pointing out other people's sins. You know, the greatest commandment that Jesus gives, when asked about the greatest commandment, he says, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Notice what he doesn't say. 
Jesus doesn't say that the greatest commandment is to be sure that everyone knows your opinion about their sin. He doesn't say that. He says, love God and love people. Love God and love people. Now, some of you, even as you've listened to this message this morning, you're listening to this message and you're excited because you know someone that needs to hear it. Right? You're committing the fundamental attribution error even as you're listening to this message where we're being encouraged not to commit the fundamental attribution error with spiritual things. How many, let's, well, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but be honest with yourself. As soon as you started hearing this message, you're like, yeah, I know of a people or a church or my neighbor who my parents need to hear this message. We do it all the time. And again, it's such a problem for us because it creates a barrier between other people and God when we do this. When we are constantly down on people because of their struggles, because of their sin, rather than pointing them simply to the cross of Jesus Christ and saying, hey, let's, let's talk about who Jesus is and what he's done for you, and we'll let him take care of the rest. We'll let him be the one. We'll let the Holy Spirit be the one who convicts you of these things over here. I just want to talk to you and make sure that you've got your relationship with Jesus Christ settled. Right? That's where we need to be. That's the example that I see from Jesus Christ here. And there's a couple things that I wrote down this week. Um, for, for me to be praying, and for you to be praying, I encourage you, you can write these down. It says, God, show me my tendency to minimize my sin and exaggerate the sin of others. We do it all the time. God, show me my tendency to minimize my sin and exaggerate the sin of others. God, show me how to keep my pride, how my pride keeps people farther away from you. Lord, show me. Show me where I'm messing up. Because my desire is that every man, woman, and child would have a relationship with you. And I don't want to do anything to drive them farther away from you. And then lastly, Lord, help me to love them the way you love me. How does God love us? Unconditionally. Romans 5, 8. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. While we were still sinners. Jesus didn't say, hey, Chuck, as soon as you get your life together, I'll go to the cross and hang there for you. No, he hung on the cross. He died on the cross and rose from the dead, knowing my sin, my filth. And he gladly did it. Let us be a a picture of that. Let this church, River Rock Bible Church, be a picture. Let this be a place where we can come and in our community groups and on Sunday morning, we can be open and honest about where we're struggling and not have any fear of guilt or shame. But we can be confident that we will experience the grace of God from others as we go forward. We can be confident that what we're going to hear is, man, I know you're struggling through that, but let me just come alongside you and love you and encourage you with the word of God and through prayer. As we do that, we will find that people are drawing closer and closer to God. Now, this time we we do our take two. Take two is just a moment for, for us to take two minutes and write down something that God has shown you, maybe something that God is saying to you through this message, an area of your life to work on. Um, hopefully it's not the name of someone who needs to hear this message. And then we also ask you to, to write down what step are you going to take this week to accomplish that action that God is calling you to. So this time, let's take two.
Imagine what it would be like if every day we were aware of our own sinfulness and every day we preached the gospel to ourselves and every day we clung to the cross of Jesus Christ. Imagine if every day we were able to love unconditionally the way God loves us. What would it be like? What would it be like at this church? What would it be like in Georgetown? What would it be like in the schools if we were able to do that? Spend some time this week, I hope as you read through Mark chapter 2 and some of the Psalms, that, that you begin to get a picture of who Jesus is and what it is he did and how he spent his life. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you so much for today. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. Lord, he loved us. You loved us unconditionally. Help us to love others the same way. Help us to do everything we can to get out of your way and simply point people to you and invite them into relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. Because we know that apart from the cross, apart from a relationship with you, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, we are nothing. We can do nothing. Lord, help us to love the way you love. In Jesus' name, amen.